Welcome to the first episode of our new podcast series, A Dissident's Guide to the Constitution, hosted by me, Alex Thompson of Eastern Approaches, and joined by my stalwart friends, David Scott of Northern Exposure and Mike Robinson of UK Column. Gentlemen, great to have you on. Why on earth, either of you can jump in to define this for us, why are we starting a series about the Constitution? Well, I'll take that one on. Well, we were writing some notes, ideally for an article series on the common law, and it was going along fine, swimmingly. It was, everything was lovely, until we got to the point where we were writing up the bit about what the rule of law meant. And then the chap who was writing it and me, I was sort of kind of doing editing on it. I couldn't agree. And in fact, couldn't actually find anything really coherent and insightful to say that we could agree on. That that kind of put a bit of a span on the works. So part of the discussions that led to this, this series starting was to define the notoriously vague term, which we hear all, all around us to justify all sorts of attacks on the liberty, and the term is the rule of law. But from my point of view, one of the things that I have noticed with my, particularly with the work that I've done with Martin Edwards on the UK column, because we've been looking at at global governance uh, and some of the global policy agendas that have been working their way through the systems like Agenda 21 and 2030 and various leadership things that are going on in the country and the world. One of So in the process of, of doing that work, we have documented and been aware of fundamental changes in the relationship between us as individuals and the way that we are governed and the state. And that relationship is being changed and People don't understand how it's being changed. They don't understand the implications of it for themselves. They don't really understand. And I'm not saying that that we do, but I'm just saying that that, that change has been taking place and we need to start investigating what, how, how have we been governed in the past? How are we being governed now? What direction are we being taken in for the future? And what does this mean for us as individuals and, and our relationship with the state. And is the state there to protect us? Is the state there to oppress us? These are the sorts of questions that I'd like to see answered by this over the, over the time. But of course, before we can make those, those judgments, we've got to know what it is that we're dealing with. And just to, just to, just to reinforce that very briefly, the, the, the common law series that we were working on also had kind of the same aim in mind, that it was working towards an, an intellectual basis for saying no an intellectual basis for refusing consent and saying to the powers that, that claim to wield the rule of law over us um, that they have no such right and and to opt out of their rule. Although you're a little behind the times, David, because up to about 15 years ago, the Anglo-Saxon world said, um, we export democracy and the rule of law to the world. And now it's, yeah, you lot abroad are not obeying the rule of law, but at home we have the rules-based international order that all must obey. So there's a hint of something that's wrong. Well, Mike and David have both excellently set this up because here's my cunning plan. I would like us to have, uh, with this podcast included, five initial podcasts looking at the core issues, and they are constitution, common law, democracy, rule of law, and a nation state, uh, terms that have already been raised uh, or alluded to by both of you. And then in a rather bigger middle or second section, we'll be covering what Mike just described as how we've been governed in the past. But don't worry, it's not going to be history. Um, it's 
you're going to be covering some of the ground that perhaps those who are 70 plus had at school, but which is uh, kept off the books now. And most school teachers and, and academic historians are not really aware of, let alone lawyers. So section B is going to be how we've been governed in the past. Section C is how we're being governed now. And I've got this interesting idea, I hope it's interesting, of using the analogy of the anatomy of the human body a bit like John Bunyan in one of his books, The Holy War, uh, to describe what's going on inside the mind and body of the nation state, the bits as they fit together. And that addresses how we're being ruled now, because then we'll get all our uh, tools out of the bag to examine what exactly has been tinkered with, how it's been done to us. And then it's a little unformed at this point, but I think a final section of the podcast, a few weeks of a section D, uh, would be about where things are going. And that will inevitably be looking towards issues like regionalization, supranational government, international government, globalism. Uh, the Commonwealth is a major part of this as Britain has formally left the European Union. So uh, there's our plan. But why should we be caring about this? Well, you've both given us some definitions of why we should. Um, but let's plunge into the practice of a constitution, because we're often told in Britain we don't have one, or that it's unwritten, or that it's informal, or that it's fluid or flexible. These are mainstream descriptions if you look at lawyers writing up on what the British constitution is. So to cut through all that claim, let's go to the practice. I have here the preambles, that's the introductory paragraphs, to half a dozen uh, constitutions of major Western countries. And uh, it'll be interesting to hear what you, uh, both of you respond to here, because this is where uh, whoever it was that gave the nation the constitution, the set of laws that, gov that govern it, or the parameters of how you can set laws and, and govern the state, how this was framed and, and worded. First of all, two examples from the dominions when they became actual uh, independent sovereign countries uh, within the Commonwealth. So here's the 1900 Commonwealth of Australia Constitution Act. And it says, whereas the people of, named territories, humbly relying on the blessing of Almighty God, have agreed to unite in one indissoluble federal commonwealth under the crown of the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Ireland, and under the constitution hereby established. And whereas it is expedient to provide for the admission into the commonwealth of other Australasian colonies and possessions of the Queen, be it therefore enacted by the Queen's most excellent majesty, by and with the advice and consent of the Lord's spiritual and temporal and commons in this present parliament assembled, and by the authority of the same as follows. Okay, so that's Westminster giving Australia a constitution in parliament. Canada, much later, uh, the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms is the pseudo-constitution for Canada, one of the latest in the world to have a written constitution. And it simply says, whereas Canada is founded upon principles that recognize the supremacy of God and the rule of law, item one. That was a very short preamble with no definition of terms. Uh, I'll just knock through these quickly. I know it's a lot for the new listeners, but just listen to the differences. The French Constitution, the Fifth Republic, this is the most recent one they've got, 1958. The French people solemnly proclaim their attachment to the rights of man, capital R, capital M, and the principles of national sovereignty as defined by the Declaration of 1789, confirmed and complemented by the later Constitution. By virtue of these principles and that of the self-determination of principles, the Republic offers to its overseas territories, etc. 
Okay, so you're not quite clear what's going on there, but there's this entity called the Republic, which has been called into being and it's constituting a nation. Four more to go. Here's Germany. Uh, this is substantially the same as the 1949 basic law for West Germany when that became the Federal Republic, uh, but amended since, particularly with reunification in 1990. Conscious of their responsibility before God and man, inspired by the determination to promote world peace as an equal partner in a united Europe, the German people, in the exercise of their constituent power, have adopted this basic law. This basic law applies to the eternal, sorry, the entire German people. All right. Actually, I will pause there because those are the four bad boys, shall we say. Um, gentlemen, what's up with these constitutions and who is doing what to whom on whose authority in what you've just heard? It's um, confused. What you have there is confusion. You have as many different views and notice, notably undefined views, undefined terms as you have countries. Now, I, I'm, I'm, I quite like the Canadian one. It is quite cool. Um, founded upon the principles that recognize the supremacy of God and the rule of law. That, that's okay. Um, now, of course, they don't define the terms. Okay. Um, they, they, they can't define God. How, how, can, you, how can you define God? Um, so it, it, it does leave it open for um, the individual to define God as, as, as he or she she sees fit uh, but, but at least they recognize a higher power but yeah this is a critical thing they recognize a higher power that's beyond human manipulation beyond human direction and which we must follow and that's that's inherent in a lot of the british constitutional ideas as well that are there are things which cannot be manipulated you get to the, maybe the french and the german and, and the feeling i got it's not about things that cannot be manipulated. It's actually it, itself, the constitution preambles themselves are actually manipulation. They're taking ideas and they're, 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 they're moving minds and moving viewpoints to a certain political position. United Europe, greater German people. Um, but the, in, the, in fairness, the, David, that must be a response to the Second World War, right? It's all a response to something. You know, the same with the French. I mean, the French would be a response to all the previous French republics that have that have, that have collapsed and empires. And well, I mean, I shouldn't editorialise too much, but to chip in a moment there, the truth of the matter would be if all post-1789 French constitutions, they've had five of them, began uh, with the secret societies have given us this, and if all the post-1949 German basic laws, actually they don't have constitutions, they have a Grundgesetz, a basic law, began with the Allies have given us this. So uh, what David is getting at actually has a, ba a basis in history. We weren't occupied in that way. Uh, well, at least not with an invasion, but we'll make it onto this later, that we are actually occupied in some sense. Um, let me just whiz through the better three examples I have here. Um, two common law and one civil law, where these, these terms will be defined as time goes on. We'll be repeating the key terms a lot for those who are just taking this in the first time. And... Um, also two English-speaking, one non-English-speaking. Okay, so here is the best, the best preamble perhaps of all in many ways. It's brief and to the point. We, the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity. 
do ordain and establish this constitution for the United States of America. Here is Bunrach Nahiran, the constitution of what was originally called the Irish Free State and now the Irish Republic. In the name of the most holy trinity, from whom is all authority, and to whom, as our final end, all actions of both men and states must be referred, we, the people of Era, humbly acknowledging all our obligations to our divine Lord Jesus Christ, who sustained our fathers through centuries of trial, gratefully remembering their heroic and unremitting struggle to regain the rightful independence of our nation, and seeking to promote the common good with due observance of prudence, justice, and charity, so that the dignity and freedom of the individual may be assured, true social order attained, the unity of our country restored, and concord established with other nations, do hereby adopt, enact, and give to ourselves this constitution. And here is an extremely brief preamble, which is as ultra-Orthodox as that was uber-Catholic. This is the constitution of Greece, or the Hellenic Republic, as they like to call themselves formally. It simply says in the preamble, in the name of the holy and consubstantial and indivisible trinity. And I'm not plugging this particular detail, but I notice with interest that Article 3.3 of the actual text of the Constitution says that the text of Holy Scripture shall be, remained, shall be maintained unaltered. Now, people might think, why are they doing God in such detail so early in the podcast series? Uh, but actually, you know, without getting into biblical specifics, you do have to have some definitions of your terms. And Greece and, the, and Ireland in particular have said, well, we get our terms of who we are and what our freedom is from the Bible. So Greece goes a step further and says, uh, we better keep the Bible text unaltered. But okay, those are two extremely Christian and actually denominationally specific examples. But these three examples, not all of them coming from the common law world, are saying something more detailed, more pointed about the limits of state power, the limits of the government which is perhaps getting closer now to the British Constitution because we have that too in a disguised form. Um, Mike, you haven't said much for a while. At the end of the day, that, that is the purpose of a constitution, isn't it? It is to define the rules by which a nation is governed. Of course, if you don't limit the, the power of or the things that government can do, then I think we are beginning to see in the modern world how, where that begins to go because uh, once people get power in their hands, it, it can run amok. So you need to have rules and, and limits for uh, government. Yeah. I mean, it sounds a boring word. And, and for many modern policymakers, it's a frustrating word for think tank people and people in non-governmental organizations and um, the commercial, the corporate lobbies that are always at the necks of government. Uh, it's extremely frustrating that, as Mike has just used that word, constitutions are full of issues like uh, limitation. You know, especially in a year like 2020, come on, dude, the world is dying of COVID. We can't have limitations on executive power. But, you know, wherever you look in time or across the world, peoples do insist on limiting the power of their government for reasons that you've just pointed out. So let's go on a bit further and talk about who writes constitutions. Oh, no, no, no. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Hold, hold it, hold it, Alex. David, David's not letting me away with this. No, I'm not letting Alex away with this. Alex is wanting to... Um... Uh, rush ahead. These were three good examples. Uh, okay, I, I've got a I've got a bit of a problem with some of these good examples. Um, the Irish one, the Irish one contained within its text, within its initial text, a claim to another country. Okay, like the flag. So the Irish one 
was which was based on all of these high stated Christian principles had within it the core of a war because it was talking about the unity of our country should be restored. And in fact, Article 6 until the um, Good Friday Agreement in 1998 said that the territory of Ireland is the entire island of Ireland. It was very explicit, yes. laying claim to Northern so Ireland. So it, it was a claim on someone else's territory and that claim was enshrined in the flag. And right, that's, that's at least a, a thing to pause and consider that these, these documents, which are meant to be protecting people, there was one that was actually given, given a reason for a war, given a reason for, for murder. So I, a bit of a question about that. The United States ones talked about general welfare. And the, the United States Constitution, in many ways, is, is one of the most striking because it's, it's, it's a relatively late one compared to the British Constitution organized in one place and held up by those who advocated as the garden tour of liberty par excellence the best humanity's ever done that would be the traditional american view of it the constitution has a place in the american heart that it doesn't perhaps have in the british heart in fact i think the whole mormon church quite major uh, major church in america claims that it's divinely inspired but look at the look at the position the country's in there are as many assaults on liberty. There are as many, um, there's much street violence. There is as much um, oppression by the government using and reinterpreting every line of the constitution to mean the exact opposite. And what these things show, and, the, and all three of those, those good examples, claim the right, we this group of people, by our own will, claim the right to set up this constitution to bind our successors. And possibly to claim territory in some cases. And possibly to claim territory. But how can one group bind another later group? It, it, it's, it is inherently um, flawed thinking because it's not based, what those three show is it's not actually based on higher power or higher reasoning or things which cannot be denied it is based on a group of people looking to establish a particular system for their own ends, good and bad, and then trying to write that down and solidify it for reasons more to do with the political situation at the time and the political ambitions of the people involved than anything more high-minded. I think what, what your run through these constitutions showed is the, is the limitation of the idea of a constitution. Yes, I'll accept that uh, because it, you know, someone has to constitute something. Somebody has to set the rules. But all of the seven there, except the first two, which are from two dominions, you know, there's, there's very few countries on earth that survived the 20th century without an invasion or a dictatorship. Basically, the, the five eyes countries, uh, plus arguably Sweden and Switzerland, but they had to cut a dirty deal with Nazism to do so, and arguably South Africa, but of course they had apartheid. So Canada and Australia are within that lucky band. And so they, they get a, a statute from Westminster and it says, okay, the Queen and Parliament have allowed you to be a country now, to be a state. Uh, but the other five all emerged from times of war, as you point out, David, although you weren't, you weren't using the word war, but it was a revolutionary struggle or throwing off a tyrannous occupier um, in all five cases at some point in pretty recent history, you know, modern times. And then a small group of the most should we say, uh, determined people, they would say patriots, uh, to describe the men who wrote all these constitutions, 
say, well, that's it. We're going to write this. And, you know, you have to write a constitution in a in an assembly, usually called a constitutional convention. But that might be 100, 200 delegates in some cases. But the, the pensmanship has to go to one or two people to write the preamble. In all of those cases, the famous ones like the US, it's, it's the work of just about one man. So yeah, you do have narrow interests there. That is what Britain, by not having it in a single document, has perhaps avoided. Uh, because all over our constitution, in the various written documents, uh, you will find broader principles. There's this idea of a lawgiver as well. This goes back actually as far as uh, well before Christ, the time of Plato. Plato talks in his books about the nomothetos, or nomothetoi plural, the lawgivers, literally. And that's not, that's not just a piece of um, abstract arcane political philosophy. Because if you read the um, jurisprudence, the, uh, the ju judicial reasoning that's written up when cases are heard, uh, so basically the notes that judges leave for why they made their decisions. If you read that uh, all over the European continent here, they will actually say in the collective use of the singular, they will say the lawgiver decided when giving us this constitution that Mr. X would do X and Mr. Y would do Y and Mr. Z was not able to do more than Z and how Mr. A could do B. The lawgiver did all this, der Gesetzgeber. And here's the interesting bit. Constitutions are ratified in civil law continental countries by parliaments. So what do these gentlemen and ladies these days in parliaments do? On top of their cap that says deputy of the person, people or lawgiver, they put a second cap which says constitution giver. In fact, in German, you only need to add a syllable to the start of the word. The Gesetzgeber becomes the Grundgesetzgeber for the purposes of ratifying the constitution. And then he takes that cap off and the rest of his parliamentary service, he's just a legislator again. Mike, can you see any problems with well, this? Well, look, I, I want to come back to a couple of points that, that David made about the US constitution. Well, the, the first point about it is, of course, no constitution is going to be perfect. It's going to be, it is always going to be a product of its time. Now, okay, with the British constitution, it evolved over a much longer period of time. So theoretically, where, where we've got to constitutionally has been thought of by, by successive generations as being a good idea. But nonetheless, where, where there's a written codified constitution, somebody has to write it and it's, it's going to be the best punt that they could possibly have had at, at the moment in time. But the point I wanted to make was David then criticized the fact that, that successors are, are bound by that. Now, it seems to me that uh, while I accept that that's not necessarily ideal, it shouldn't be an easy process to change the constitution because, of course, if it's a very simple thing, as you're suggesting in Germany here, Alex, just to put a second hat on and, and ratify a completely different rule, then if vested interests come along and change the rules in their own interests over time. It should be a hard thing, therefore, in my opinion, for a constitution to be changed. That doesn't mean that it, should, it shouldn't be possible to change it, but there, but there need to be controls over how that gets done so that somebody can't just come along, uh, make an enabling act and suddenly elect themselves dictator. It's curious, isn't it? Because going back to the Weimar era, a lot of Germans, Germany's constitutional wording comes from that era. Uh, from that time forward, they've had so-called eternity clauses. Germany is one of the most major countries in the world that has a so-called eternity clause. Most other uh, single document written constitutions don't have one. But Germany's and most of the others that have such an eternity clause say, we will never, ever, ever lose our democracy. A bit like rule Britannia, but in, in constitutional form rather than musical form. Um, ironically enough, it was Germany that did so. And as you say, Mike, it did so through this Ermächtigungsgesetz, the enabling law. So the same gentleman took off their second hat, 
they were no longer Grundgesetzgeber or constitution giver. They were just Gesetzgeber or, or common or garden law giver. And then they said, here you are, be a Führer. So even where there is there's some idea of checks and balances or even eternity clauses doesn't work in practice. The point I was making it wasn't quite the one that Mike was, was picking up there. It's not that... It was that it's 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 incoherent and inconsistent to say that we, this body of, of ordinary men, are now going to set rules which are not capable of being changed by subsequent generations. It, it, it clearly doesn't work. So there must be there must be a mechanism of change. And if there's a mechanism of change, then you you would question how much I would question how much actual protection the constitution is providing to the people who are sheltering under it. We see in America, we see that the people who would call themselves the patriots explicitly, expressly holding up the constitution. This is what we want to be governed by. This is what we want to go back to. We see the same in Ireland. We see the, the, the people, again, who call themselves patriots or nationalists in Ireland say, our country's been stolen from us. And they're holding up the constitution often literally and say, we want to go back to that. A lot of these people clearly see it as a protection. My argument is it can't really be that because it was created by a group of men and women, mostly men, in power, exercising that power to create it. And it's only maintained as long as that situation re remains. And if the power goes, if the people change their views, it will only be a speed bump in the road to making the country something different. So it, it's not, if it's human, it cannot be ground on which you would be able to build resistance to tyranny with the sort of security that you might hope or the sort of security that the advocates for especially the American constitution might claim, you know, it's the most perfect constitution, um, the founders were great and wise and good, and all we've got to do is go back to this and all of our problems will end. This is asking way too much of a human document written ex expressly that, that this group of people are claiming this and creating this um, series of rights and series of responsibilities out of nothing, uh, by our will, by our agreement. That, that has a lifespan. I think, David, you and I in particular are pretty close to the positions of John Waters in Ireland. Uh, but even... On this point, perhaps you even have a difference with him because John is among the most eloquent of those in the Republic of Ireland who have been saying that by uh, saying that God had given uh, certain things inalienably to people, the Irish constitution was putting them beyond human reach. And by putting God and a very Christian God too in the preamble, uh, Ireland was collectively acknowledging that you couldn't do the things that are now being done to the relevant section in the middle of the Irish constitution, which is take away people's right to life and give people nonsensical rights to marry. Um, so th there is some question here as to what the real guarantees are. And at, at this point, listeners who've been in Britain all their lives are probably thinking, well, this is all well and good, but we don't have such a document, do we? Uh, but actually we do. And if you want to narrow it down to one, we'll be going into a lot more detail about it in future episodes. It is a kind of a document that we're often told we don't have much of in Britain, which is a treaty. Now, a treaty, of course, is either between a sovereign and a sovereign, so two kings, ultimately, in the early days, or it's between a sovereign and the people. Another word for it would be covenant, I think, although there are differences between the words. And one of the points of deception in the British constitution, uh, at the point when it was still 
separate English and Scots constitution, but being married, managed along parallel tracks in many ways, is this idea that it was Parliament that declared the rights, the immunities, so don't touch me kind of rights, um, enumerated 13 of them, as a condition of which kings from William III onwards would swear the coronation oath. It was a condition of accepting the crown. We're told if you look at the Wikipedia article on Declaration of Right, for example, that Parliament promulgated it in 1689. But they're deliberately, the editors there are deliberately skirting over the fact that Parliament wasn't meeting uh, so soon after the expulsion of James. Uh, actually, there, what there was was a meeting of uh, representatives from the boroughs, so basically local councillors, as we call them today, met with the lords. Well, there was no crown at this point, so you couldn't have the crown meeting with Parliament. It wasn't a Parliament in that technical sense. But they were at least meeting to say, okay, these are the terms, these are the minimum requirements under which the crown must be uh, given to the next candidate. But but the key the key point, Alex, wasn't it? Was that that was that was a form of constitutional convention? Yes, it was a convention under a different name. In the United States, a century later, they called it a constitutional convention. But exactly that is what it was. People convened in London to represent the estates of the realm, as they're called. Normally, that would be the crown in Parliament. So, the monarch, the lords, and the commons. And people in republics might think, oh, what we want with, with monarchs and, and, and nobles, but we'll get to that later in this series. And you do have equivalents in egalitarian republics too. It's just that you've, you're trained not to think of them as that. But without that, you still have these estates of the realm being basically the, the local people, you know, that will be represented in the commons these days and by their councillors, and the lords representing the continuity uh, of knowledge and wisdom in the country. And also those with special privileges, the Corporation of London and the Church of England, as it happened historically in England. And these estates get together and parlay, as from French, parlay to talk, in Parliament, except it's not a formal Parliament without the, the king being there. This is probably all sounding a bit mushy and complicated to people who haven't thought about it much. But I think the outlines are clear enough, and we'll be defining the terms again and again as we go through. One bunch of people, as David was outlining, cannot just impose its will on another and say, this is good and right and God's will and for all time. There needs to be some agreement of, of you know, what, what experience has taught. I know that the constitutional statutes on the statute book of the United Kingdom begin with, whereas it hath been found by experience that, uh, or in the case of 1689 Declaration of Right, before you get to the 13 powers, sorry, 13 limitations on the crown, you have a preamble of grievances. The king has done this wrong, has done that wrong, and has aggrieved us. He's billeted troops on us. He's taken away our arms. He's taxed us um, unnecessarily and without justification, for example. So the grievances, the, the, the knowledge of what's gone wrong come first. So you've already got more than just a grand set of philosophical principles, like in France or Germany, like man is digni has dignity or whatever. Uh, you've got something more grounded that if we don't have these limits on power, something's going to go horribly wrong pretty soon. Indeed, and, and one of the things that I think is very powerful about the British constitution is that, you know, I understand David's concerns about, about codified constitutions and, and the binding of successors, but Britain has never had a codified constitution in this sense. It has had a path through history and through time where at various points in history, new documents have appeared through either historical events and treaty and or, or through acts of parliament, in fact. And so it has evolved over time. And of course, one of the, the things actually that, that people that are sort of anti the British constitution talk about often is that, well, this law is ancient law. It doesn't really apply anymore. It's not relevant to the modern day or the modern age. But of course, the reality is the exact opposite, that the older the law, then that means that 
successive generations have all agreed that that law was a good law. You know, a classic example of that, Mike, would be that experience uh, required Edward III and his parliament to promulgate a law uh, in 1351 with the Latin title Primunire, which was uh, declaring it treasonous to go beyond the realm to seek uh, advice, basically legal advice. Uh, so preventing the Pope from having total domination over Britain. And that remained on the statute books for 610 or so years. And in the 1960s, a radical Lord Chancellor, that's the head of the legal profession, at least for England, Wales and Northern Ireland, um, declared uh, that Primunire was too old to be of any use and took it off the statute books just in time for us to join the EEC, which of course required absolutely continuous seeking of legal advice beyond the seas. So, you know, th there is an idea of... And I mean, that, 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 is, that is an absolute perfect example of it, isn't it? Because, because if the modern British inhabitant is, is to be convinced that ancient law is something we just should discard, we're discarding our most basic liberties and, and freedoms in the process. It's something, something that we should give real thought to and real, have real discussion about before we just do. But of course, the British, well, anyone in the world is, as a population is fairly lazy or short of time to look at things. Uh, but in the particular example of Britain, I think there was a knowledge by Gerald Gardiner and his his, his cronies, the Harold Wilson government, that what would go down with the British with the least resistance was this idea of, oh, old hat, piffle. So uh, as, as confirmed to Albert Burgess, in fact, a researcher of the Constitution in more recent years, what would it be, the Lord Chancellor's Department, or these days it would be the uh, so-called uh, Ministry of Justice, spoke to Mr. Burgess or replied to him and said, well, the reason why Gardner did this in 1964, I think it was, was because Prime Minister had become obsolete. In fact, in Scots law, and this is, again, looking ahead to future episodes, Scots law takes continental Roman doctrines into its uh, legal reasoning. Uh, it isn't founded on those, but it has a layer of that in the system. Scots law does have this fancy Latin word, de juritude, which is a, a variation of the word desuetude, meaning no longer being accustomed. Uh, becoming old-fashioned and, and forgotten. But the legal version is de juritude, a very rare word, uh, basically, but it means that the principle that an old law can no longer be law. And this for principle was foreign even to Scotland before the 17th century, and then by the 20th century, it's a very useful new argument that's come out of nowhere at this level of jurisprudence, you know, judges reasoning on what, what's accepted and what's not. You see this a lot more on the continent, by the way, down to local council level. Um, it's resolved by some city council that some group of people will be offered a building in perpetuity, uh, a club or a church or whatever, because of some historical injustice or circumstance. And then you get to about 2000, 2010, and the local council in, in here in the Netherlands, for example, will say, ah, that, that's, that's no longer something of this time, is the, is the Dutch phrase they use. Uh, so we're going to take that away from you, even though it says it was an eternal principle in there. So, again, safeguards are not quite what they seem often, are they? So, so if we were to bring these thoughts together kind of with an eye on the clock before we pause before the next episode, the series is called A Dissident's Guide to the Constitution. So what should a dissident see? The dissident's going to look at this and say, well, they're not perfect. They're flawed. They're of the time. But by going back to perhaps a simpler age, perhaps an age where Thinking was more first principles. It was more fundamental. It was based on um, a pursuit of freedom in very harsh and demanding circumstances where the, the concept had a direct meaning for the people of the time. It may therefore be a reservoir of right thinking and well-doing and good ideas and means of resisting tyranny 
written down by people who, although flawed, were, generally speaking, thoughtful and whose ideas have been tested over centuries. And it therefore still offers um, offers um, a basis for resisting uh, aggression against their freedom and it offers a basis for challenging uh, modern heresies and modern errors and um, it allows something where we can go back to ideas that were articulated clearly, pick them up, understand them, dust them down and use them afresh in our current fight against tyranny. Is that is that what the dissident would say? I would say so. I mean, we've, we've dealt with a lot of dissidents in the UK column over the years. Our absent colleague, Brian Gerrish, being older than us, has, has uh, been the shoulder for most people to cry on. But I think more than the three of us put together, probably. Uh, but what he's continually found is that the best people, um, the, the most law-abiding people, the most decent people from many walks of life, had the least idea of how to be a dissident, had the least idea that actually the common law which we'll go into definitions about next time, um, set the boundaries uh, of, of proper behavior, of lawful behavior, even where a statute made legal behavior something different. And so it is incumbent on a dissident to know things are, some, certain things are just not on and they can't be made to be right. And you know, a slight bridge to next week, perhaps, where we'll be talking about common law and civil law. Um, in a civil law tradition, on the continent, or increasingly in Britain too, you'll be told, well, rights are rights. They're just rights. You know, you, you can have what, what prevailing current opinion says you should have. Uh, whereas common law will actually set more definitions and say, are we talking about positive or negative rights? We'll, we'll look at that next time, what that means. So in the civil law tradition, which increasingly is dominating the whole world, if the majority of parliament and the majority of the judiciary and the, the majority of uh, the thought leaders, the media, agree that I've got a right to your stuff, David. You know, maybe in another generation, it'll become a prevailing opinion that I've got a right to, to live in a room of your house if you're not using it. There's nothing in the civil law uh, to stop that, because ultimately man's made himself God in that system for all his fine talk about God being above him. Common law is the system and the constitution that actually says there are limits. It's a massive area We'll be going at this for quite some weeks. I suspect we're going to be splitting the Common Law podcast into two. There's a lot to get through. But hang in there, and I'm sure before long we will be starting to find out what it is that dissidents are not supposed to know, to know about the Constitution.
That's true. 